I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today is Zach Borges. He was a senior software engineer at YouTube and Google for eight and a half years. While working at YouTube, he learned that Google was censoring fake news and investigated further into the company, only to find that not only had Google defined fake news to mean actual events that had happened, but also created an artificial intelligence system to classify all available data to Google search. The reason Google wanted to classify data was so that this could be used by their artificial intelligence system to re-rank the entire internet according to Google's corporate cultural values. In June 2018, he resigned from Google. He took with him 950 plus pages of Google internal documents and delivered them to the Department of Justice and through Project Veritas to inform the public about Google's extensive censorship system. Here to tell this incredible firsthand account of censorship and bias in big tech is Zach Voorhees, author of the new book, Google Leaks, a whistleblower's expose of big tech censorship. Zach, thank you for joining me. You know, as we spent the last five years talking about big tech censorship, your book, Google Leaks, couldn't be out at a better time. Frankly, so many of us don't understand how these Silicon Valley companies work to create a censored environment on the internet. And I'm hoping you can help us understand that today. 
So let me ask you, though, before we get into your book, which I'm very excited about, tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to become employed by Google in 2010. First off, thank you, Newt, for having me on your program. It's an absolute honor to be here. So how did I get my start at Google? It started off with my education. I've spent a lot of years in the university getting three majors in the sciences. So psychology, mathematics, and computer science. I tripled majored out of the University of Oregon. I went into game development, which brought me to San Francisco to work for the LucasArts studio doing the Indiana Jones game. From there, I went to Google, which was my dream job. And I was working for the Google Earth team. And that Google Earth took their product and put it onto the Audi navigation system, which I argue is the best navigation system in the world at the time. And then from there, I actually left the company in August of 2013 before coming back. I left because I wanted to create a product for cycling, which was a bunch of LEDs on the back of the hand. And when you take the glove and click the finger, together, then the lights come on. And that still exists at zackies.com. You can check it out. But that sent me to China to manufacture this product after I had gotten funding and done a successful Kickstarter. And what I noticed really quickly was one, I couldn't manufacture the product in the United States. And two, China had rigged this entire economic system to export to the United States. And so I started to get this idea that something was wrong. And when I would come back to Google in 2016, I carried with me this knowledge that the entire economic system had somehow been gamed in China's favor. And so when Trump was elected, it really wasn't a surprise for me because I knew that there was this existential threat of what China was doing to the United States. And I thought that, hey, you know, here's Trump, here's a man that's going to you know, address this problem and has the courage to speak up about it. But it turns out that the rest of the company didn't share my perspective on Mr. Donald Trump. And when he got into the presidency, I thought to myself, well, this is pretty funny. You know, there's this is the first time we've won a cultural movement in like the last 30 years. And the left has been defeated. But as it turned out, Google would start to form a resistance against Trump. And it happened within one week of Trump winning the election. You may remember that Google had a meeting, an all-hands meeting, where the C-level executives came together and talked about how they didn't like populism, how they didn't like Trump. And one of the things that went unnoticed by most of the other press was a question asked by one of the employees saying, what was the most effective thing that Google had done during the 2016 election? And the CEO, Sundar Pichai, responded to him and said that it was their use of machine learning in order to censor fake news. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, wait a minute, we're, we're censoring fake news? Who decides what fake news is? And so I started to dig in to the company to figure out, you know, well, because obviously if there's fake news and a definition of it, then there's a fake news team, a committee that decided on that. And so because the entire company is transparent to all full-time employees, I can just go and see what the fake news team is doing. And lo and behold, there was a whole bunch of documents that they had 
defining what fake news was. And Newt, four out of the five examples that they used all had to do with Hillary Clinton and her involvement with arming ISIS. And they were saying that, oh, this is fake news and this is fake news. And even if the sources of that news were actually fake, the thing is, is that they were so close to events that I remembered happening that I decided, well, I'm just going to you know, become an expert on what happened with Clinton and the whole Benghazi thing. And lo and behold, it looks like Clinton was running a weapons trafficking operation into Syria to arm ISIS. And so I said, well, okay, well, there's some legs on the story. And it's really interesting. Is Google really trying to censor the fake news or are they trying to put their thumb on the scale of the election? And I started to get this idea that it was the latter, that they were trying to suppress some of the bad news about their preferred candidate. And so that's really kind of like what got me started was just this curiosity sort of killed the cat trying to figure out what exactly this company was doing with this whole fake news mess. So that's how I got started on this journey. Well, what is there about the culture of Silicon Valley that leads three of its biggest companies to believe that they have the right to define for the rest of us what we're allowed to see? I mean, it's really an extraordinary lack of self-awareness, it seems to me, when you have these guys decide that they will be the censors for 325 million people. What drives that? You know, I search for some sort of cultural perspective that allows them to do this sort of thing. And it's hard for me to even find any rational explanation on why they went to such extreme opposite end of the view of privacy. Google said that they were going to do organic search results. And then they just switched the whole thing around so that it was highly refined, highly processed, fake search results that pushed a political point of view. And when I look back at this, it's like, well, what was Google's signs that they were kind of a libertarian organization? Well, it was their IPO. And their IPO, they promised the world that they would First off, don't be evil. And then second was organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So they promised their stockholders that that's what they were going to do. They promised Congress that they were going to be politically neutral. You know, they testified under oath they were politically neutral. And then at the same time, they were designing this wide-scale total information censorship engine called machine learning fairness. And the only sort of explanation is, are they an agent? Because they're acting like an intelligence organization controlled by a foreign adversary than a natural, like organic organization that, you know, got big because of their stock value. And, you know, exactly what their motivations are or how they came to do what they do, I'm not sure. I just know that who's ever controlling them also seems to be controlling the mainstream media because they all decide on the exact same thing together, like a church that is intolerant towards heterodoxy. And that's my conclusion right now is that there's some form of church 
and they've got a specific ideology. And if you agree with it, you're on the inside. And if you don't, you're canceled. Well, when these guys sit around at lunch or whatever, is it your sense that they are more likely to assume that the United States is bad and other countries are by definition better? I sometimes get this feeling that there's an inherent bias against American values and American patriotism and that they don't want to carry or cover those kind of thematics. Before 2016, I would say that Google was very pro-American. It was literally the election of Donald Trump that they became anti-American and it happened within less than a year. When you began to, to prepare to leave, you took 950 pages of internal documents with you. Why did you decide to take the documents and how did you choose the documents you took? So that's a great question. As I started to dig down into the documents, they were so outrageous about what Google was doing and so opposite from what they were saying out in public that I started to wonder if I was descending into some sort of weird state. And so I just said, you know what, this is so out there. I just have to copy these as PDFs just so that, you know, when I'm being gaslit by the media, I can have this thing that I can look at and it will prove that what I know is real. And so I just started downloading as many of these documents as I could because one, I needed to, you know, assure myself that this was happening. And then two, I knew that once Google realized what they were doing was going to be a PR disaster, they would start pulling these documents off from the internal servers. And so at that point, I just said, well, I see it now. I know that I've got it now. I might as well save it so that I've got it for later use. And to my surprise, like every time I put a red line in the sand and said, well, Google's not going to cross this, that would be, you know, ungoogly. And every single line they crossed and then like crossed it more. And it was just this progressive, you know, more authoritarian, more extremist organization that was emerging. And as this was happening, the internal rhetoric, the internal brainwashing that they were using on their employees also ramped up. And it seemed to sort of like ramp up where they would message something to the all hands meetings. And then three months later, it would become policy. And I just saw this over and over and over again in the company. And over the course of essentially four years, I mean, Google's completely opposite of what it was in 2016. In 2016, Susan Wachowski, CEO of YouTube, had this PowerPoint presentation expounding on libertarian values of self-expression. And we're not going to get in the way of you being able to give your best self to the world. And by 2017, she's like, we got to like kill the fake news and boost the authoritative content. And that meant like CNN and MSNBC and the Wall Street Journal and all those players up there. And so it was just this complete 180 degree swap in the course of one year and then an extreme version of that three years later by 2020. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. 
Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, what was there, do you think, about Trump that led to such a toxic reaction among the senior executives at Google? I'm not entirely sure why people have Trump derangement syndrome. I'm just not affected by whatever it is. Often bellicose and alpha male type personalities are very effective at what they do. So I have an appreciation for it. But for some reason, there's just something in 
a lot of people that just have a deep revolt for the president and they also don't see that the mainstream media isn't there to inform them it's there to push a political agenda and everything that it says is a statement and a projection of power that's what i've come to realize over the last four years and for a lot of people they just don't see that it seems invisible to them they don't see kind of like the walls of the information matrix and they can't believe that an entire system of people that they think is organic and free in the sense-making community is essentially captured by this very slim minority of the population but that's sort of the way that i can use to explain what was going on and not just at Google, but also at Facebook and also the whole mainstream media complex. I'm gonna take you out in a limb for a second and you don't have to go with me, but as they watch what's happening in Afghanistan right now, will their tendency be to just shrug it all off because it doesn't really matter or to be concerned about the scale of the American defeat or to think that actually that things will be better by having this happen? I honestly think that that social media titans are trying to weaken America. And so this humiliating defeat in Afghanistan, I mean, we couldn't even pull out correctly. It was a complete and total disaster and radiated an incredible amount of weakness. And what you see is the leader of the Taliban being allowed to be on Twitter, but our own President Trump is not allowed to be on Twitter. I mean, they care more about the freedom of speech for America's quote unquote enemies than they do for former presidents. You know, and so when people are like, well, how come nothing's being censored? It's my belief that Google and Facebook and Twitter are obviously trying to destroy the United States or trying to destabilize it, possibly at the behest of someone that's trying to destroy the United States, whether that be China or the party of Davos or a combination of the two. You know, Google seems to be acting in their favor. And that's the reason why I think that you see things like the Taliban having a voice, but President Trump not having a voice. So when you took the documents and you made them public, you only received a letter from Google with demands to, quote, cease and desist from any use or disclosure of any internal Google files you possess, close quote. Were you at all concerned? about running legal liabilities. You're sort of the biggest whistleblower we've seen so far in Silicon Valley. And certainly when you have institutions as big and rich and closed as these are, we need more people willing to stand up for the truth and to blow the whistle. But were you at all concerned that this could get out of hand and you could end up going to jail? Oh yeah, I mean, that thought crossed my mind, but I'll say that it's not nearly as scary as the prospect of proving myself to be a coward before the Lord. And that's really like what gave me the power to be able to fight through all this. Because at the end of the day, if I was a prisoner of conscience, that would be a much better outcome than proving that these thoughts that I would do the right thing under times of adversary would be proven wrong and that I would just continue to eat at the trough of big tech as a high paid employee while my country is destroyed. That's something that is intolerable to myself. 
which is the reason why I went through with my defection. And, you know, maybe one day I may have an accident and not be here anymore. And I'm actually okay with that because, you know, through this short period and limited time of my lifespan, I've been able to have a positive impact on the planet and to let people know that there's this plan for totalitarianism, this panopticon. And if we want to change it, we still have a chance. You know, it's not implemented yet. And, you know, the first step to defeating this enemy is to understand what they're doing. And this is the reason why I took this enormous risk to bring this information to light. You know, most of our listeners will not be familiar with Jeremy Bentham's concept of the panopticon. Can you sort of briefly explain Bentham's idea? Yeah, so it was this panopticon, which literally translates into the all-seeing eye. That's a rough translation, but pan means all, opticon means eye. So it was an idea for an efficient prison complex that was easy to manage. And it was a circular prison with an observatory, one-way mirrored enclosure in the middle that was able to see into all of the different prisons at the same time. And so they could look in, but the prisoner could not tell if someone was looking at them from the administration room. And so they always lived with this fear that they were being watched, not know if they were being watched at that particular time. And, you know, the book to kind of popularize this point was 1984. And basically the television looks back at you. And now this concept of the panopticon has come to life now. It's in our phones. You know, we hear these rumors that our phones and our TVs are turning on their microphones I read this other paper that says that your speaker can also turn into a microphone because it's kind of the same thing mechanically and that it can be read. And so now every single speaker that's out there, you know, we could look at that with suspicion that maybe it's actually a dual use microphone that's listening in on our conversations and sending it back to some sort of centralized data repository, which is keeping a shadow profile on us in some database. And, you know, people are searching for the word, like, what's the system that's being built? And a good name for it is the panopticon. I mean, in some ways, this parallels Orwell's 1984 and other visions of a totalitarian system. There's a point in one of Camus' books where he writes that there are times when a man can be killed for saying two plus two equals four because the system can't tolerate the truth. I mean, did you have some of that sense that you were trapped into a gigantic system worldwide that was evolving in ways that were going to tell us what reality was rather than learn about reality, that our job was in a sense to be brainwashed into their version of fact and their version of what they would have called real news? Yeah, I saw sort of the Death Star being built all around me, you know, and I started to see the manipulation of the population through this civic brainwashing program that was being unleashed. And what's even scarier is I would see slides which talked about the four-step process for programming people like us, you know, basically civic brainwashing. And the first step is 
that training data are collected and classified, and I'm reading this from my book, algorithms are programmed, media are filtered, ranked, aggregated, or generated, that's step three. And then the final step is people like us are programmed, and then that starts the cycle over again with the data that new group of people generates can then be used as a cycle to shift the population you know, left or right. And to see that Google was literally thinking of its users as programmable units was something that, you know, it's like, this is a prison. Like it's not a prison with prison bars. It's a form of mental prison where the bars are the fake news and the fact that you're being influenced by your access to information and access to language because information and language are very well mixed. If you ban certain hate speech ideas, then you're literally banning certain ideas. And then, you know, people just sort of expand into the information that they're allowed to access. And so if you can shift that window left or right, then people are just going to follow that window wherever it goes. And no one elected these people. No one said, let's have a vote and put them in power. They elected themselves and they sat on the throne and they said, this is the way that it's going to be. And they lied about it all the while they were laying down the foundation to unroll this and release it to the United States and the world. So Google talks a lot about machine learning fairness. What does that actually mean? So machine learning fairness is the merging of artificial intelligence with critical race theory. And what this machine learning fairness does is that it generates classifiers. And you know you can almost think of them as social justice classifiers. And they classify for things such as hate speech or right-wing network talk. So let me give you like an example of how this works. So Google will train a classifier, let's say identifies right-wing news, and then that gets run on every single video that gets released on YouTube, that gets uploaded and published. And so, you know, I would go and I would look on Dave Rubin's internal dashboard of the company. I would see that these machine learning fairness classifiers had classified his video in all these different ways, like, you know, in terms of like talk and news and right wing, et cetera. And then when he had something that they didn't like, it would get flagged with some sort of hate speech classification, and then the video would go down. And so this was happening throughout the content creators of YouTube. And so this machine learning fairness is a system that generates classifiers, and those classifiers classify the data as hate speech. And it can be news, it can be video content, it can be websites. And what this allows them to do is this allows Google to essentially create blacklists, but instead of having it in a human readable format, it's in this like weirdo neural net language that nobody understands. You can't audit it. Like even if you were to get this information exposed in a court of law, no one would be able to make heads or tails of what it means. And so this is really the dangerous part is that they're creating a black box for censorship which runs on the entire information landscape. Is this being done by people or by artificial intelligence? 
so the artificial intelligence is a product of the training data. And this training data is being generated by employees of the company. And what they do is they go through and they put tags, they assign labels to data. And those assigned labels travel with the data to the AI machine learning. And it uses that and finds the patterns that allow those labels to be assigned to all the data. So it finds the meaning, the patterns. And then once you give it new data, new news articles, new videos, it's able to classify those with great performance, similar to what a human may score it. So the total volume of information that Google must have about the normal person must be staggering. I'm thinking back, we've gone through a long process of trying to evolve HIPAA as a law that protects your medical records and gives you some sense of security. But when you think about the scale of what Google's doing, the fact is that they know virtually everything about you that has ever touched an electronic system. That's a level of penetration we can't even imagine. I mean, they've got everything about you. I mean, they could create a shadow profile. I mean, they do create shadow profiles about you. That's the whole debate that's going on with their ad engine. Because in order to target you more effectively so that you will more likely buy an ad that's presented to you, Google needs to know everything they can about you, whether you're a cyclist or whether you live in the city or whether you live in the rural areas or whether you're married, whether you're not married, whether you're a boy or a girl, what's your age, what's your income. All these things will predict your likelihood for being shown a particular ad, A, B, or C. And so Google has amassed this hidden shadow social networking profile for each individual on the planet. And that information is largely unregulated. I'm pretty sure that's going to have to change. And the reason why it's going to have to change is because China's got access to that data too. And the United States does not have a symmetrical penetration into China. And that's a real big problem because if you know users' location through their phones, then you know if an assassin drone wants to take someone out, well, you've got their live updates. And then if the United States is like, hey, we want to do the same thing in retaliation to China, well, you can't do that because China doesn't allow their citizens to be subverted by Western ideology pretty much at all. They don't allow our businesses to come in there. They don't allow us to get access to their customers to any large degree. And so right now what's happening is that you know, China, which I'm not a fan of, I think that they are a rival to the United States. I think it's been a mistake that we've been giving them this preferential trade practices. They have an asymmetric advantage that if they're allowed to continue to collect this information on the United States citizens, then, you know, the United States is going to be at a very strong disadvantage in comparison to China. And that's going to be really bad if China wants to do a sneak attack or if China wants to get at a politician that's not friendly to the CCP. I mean, how do you even defend against that? It's impossible. Something has to happen. We have to have some lockdown of our data. We cannot allow Google to data pipe information on the entire population of the United States to China. Something's gonna happen, something's gonna change. You don't need to be a Republican or a Democrat to know that right now the system that we have is impossible to maintain in the future and we need to have some sort of radical regulation 
on the data privacy that we have, not just as individuals, but as a country. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in addition to their effort to 
proactively understand us and reshape us. YouTube, for example, also is just creating a whole series of blacklists where they block you from getting the new information and they shape your sort of information environment in which you're allowed to learn. I find myself on occasion being very cautious about certain tweets and certain what have you, because I realize if you get me banned for, you know, 30 days or 90 days or whatever, it's a totally weird system. But what's your sense of the YouTube kind of approach to just literally blacklisting and blocking people from communicating? You know, I think that Google has a fiduciary responsibility to maximize their shareholder value. I personally saw Google destroy its own shareholder value of its parent company through the substantial censorship that they were applying to their users. And at this point, they will ban you from the platform if you say that vitamin C and vitamin D can be used to lessen the effects of COVID-19, which has been proved in paper after paper, but hasn't gone through the citadel of the FDA. And so Susan literally went on to CNN and said that vitamin C would be banned from their YouTube platform if it said that it would help treat COVID-19. And, you know, there should be a shareholder revolt. I really believe that there should be a class action lawsuit where the shareholders get together and said, look, this is false advertising. At the very least, it's false advertising. When Google goes IPO and puts out a statement saying that they have essentially a constitution and that their mission statement is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible, how can they both say that and then also at the same time say that they're going to ban videos talking about vitamin C and vitamin D. It's just amazing. It's mind-blowing that they would do this. And we've got to get together because if they're going to do this with vitamin C, like what chance does anyone have of stability for their enterprise if their enterprise relies on the Google search index? Google tomorrow could wake up and say, you know what, we're only going to have links for Amazon and WebMD and Wikipedia. And if you're not part of this inclusion list, then you're on the outside and you're not part of our authoritarian cabal. And that's a really dangerous thing. And that's where we're going right now. And if you look at the parameters that they use to rank individual websites, because that's what Google does now, it's called a page rank score. What you're going to find is that your page rank score is based upon what Wikipedia has to say about you. And Wikipedia has gone from first primary sources to secondary echo chamber sources. Like, oh, well, this person had this to say about it. And then it turns out that they're usually circularly referencing someone else and so on and so forth. So basically right now, Wikipedia, for anything political, is relying on a group of insiders and what they have to say in the mainstream media and then laundering the defamation that they have onto a authoritarian source that then Google uses to rank your website, your topic, or rank the individual. And by the way, Google does not show anyone what their page rank score. I saw a congressional request to get the page rank score and Google told them no. And this is something that I really hope that, 
as we get sort of regulation going for Google, we can say, look, if you're going to have like a secret score on every single individual person, you need to publish that because we need to know whether it's fair and we need to have some sort of remedy if it's not. No, I think that's right. So from your standpoint, I gather we're going to have to have legislative action, which probably means the presidential administration after this one. But I think this could easily become a very widespread issue, and maybe even as early as the 2022 election, begin to shape things because people just have a deep sense of how biased and how unfair Silicon Valley oligarchs have become. What is your sense as you uh, you talk to people and you describe your new book? What kind of reaction do you get? You know, it's funny. We thought that the liberal press was going to destroy this book, the review, but it turns out that the liberal press loves my book so far. Kirkus Reviews gave a recommendation. They liked the book. They said it was really good. This is not a left or right issue. This is a censorship issue. Both the left and the right hate censorship. And I mean the legitimate left, like the people themselves, the populist left, not the authoritative Citadel MSM left. In populism, censorship is abhorrent. And we don't want these apex oligarchs to control the discourse of America. Because even if they're rooting for your team, Newt, like a different administration can come, seize control of that organization, and then swap it the other way. And now you're in big trouble. And so the only hedge against that is to decentralize their power, return it to the people, and allow the people themselves to be able to come to sort of a consensus in the best way that they can for how they want to run their society. The United States is biased towards entrepreneurship. You know, we were oriented towards that way and making something out of yourself. Like I followed that dream. Many other people come to this country to follow that dream. One of my business associates like came from Czechoslovakia and he left because he was an entrepreneur at heart and he realized that there was nothing that he could ever do in that country to rise up. And so he came here and he moved to San Francisco. He got married and he's done a bunch of startups and his latest startup, which I've helped him with, has made a lot of money and he's going to be fantastically wealthy and I'm so happy for him. And it's such an American story. And that's something that we need to preserve. That's like the fire of Prometheus that gives the ignition that lights the economy of the American system. And so, you know, the reaction to going out there and saying, yeah, censorship's bad and this is how they do it, it's more fascination. And then once people see the engine, you know, how Google does the censorship, they get revolted, they get disgusted, even if they're radical leftists. When I tell them that Google decided with their machine learning fairness that they are going to autocomplete a Google search so that when you type in man can and hit space, Google's going to autocomplete and say men can get pregnant, men can have periods, men can lactate. And I think that that's still available right now if you go and search for it. And Look, I don't care if you're a radical communist, like that's some messed up stuff. And even if you personally agree that that's what it should be for yourself, very few people are willing to impose that onto other people. And that's the problem that we have is we have coercion of an ideology and to try to normalize that on everyone else. And if you react to it, then 
you find that you're getting cut off from the network. And in extreme cases, that goes all the way to having your financial system cut off by the banks, by PayPal. And right now we need a new movement where we come through and we say, no, you can't cut someone off from Twitter just because you don't like what they had to say when it's not been hateful. You can't cut off someone from their bank account because they associated with moderate centrist individuals, you know, that aren't preaching violence, that just have an idea that the mainstream doesn't necessarily agree with. Like we want a tolerant society that's diverse and has different ideas. That's what made America great. And what Google is doing right now is making America not great. It's making America worse and it's turning it into a rigid ideological church, similar to what's happened in cultural revolutions in places like China and elsewhere. You know, the head of digital at our company, Gingo360, has experienced Google's suppression that you've described. And he wanted me to ask you a couple quick questions. As a content producer, we follow Google's recommendation for publishing content for natural search very closely. Yet since early 2021, we've seen our content listing fluctuate on a nearly daily basis. Now, why do you think that is? In fact, for about a week before the Georgia Senate special election, in the first week of January, we shifted on results from my name all the way to the third page of results. Then, right after the election, back to page one, literally the day after the election. I mean, does that make sense given what you know about how Google operates? Yes, and what's happening is that there are changing narratives that are being presented in the media. These narratives pop up and those narratives in the mainstream press is what's determining ranking. And as that oscillates back and forth, like new articles come out and then it gets sort of like forgotten and it goes away, then what happens is that your search rankings can go up again. Because right now it's like Google can't even archive the historical articles anymore because the narrative is now changing so fast, like the Wuhan leak, right? Before that was something that was so fringe that you could be kicked off of Twitter for talking about it. But now it's recognized as that's actually the thing that probably happened. And so what happens is that Google is prioritizing not just the authoritative content, but what the authoritative content has said in the last week, in the last month, in the last season. And so because of that, what happens is that people are seeing a lot of volatility. And by the way, this is all my expert opinion, is that a lot of people are seeing volatility because what they're experiencing is that they're experiencing an MSM attack and then Google is laundering that attack into their internal search rankings. And those search rankings are then pushing you down towards the back pages of Google. And let's be honest, if you're not in the first three pages of the search result, like if you're on page 15, you might as well be censored off the internet. You know, it's that serious. And so, you know, whenever you drop in rankings, what you should see is what have other people been saying about me in the MSM press? And two, what does Wikipedia have to say? And if you see negative articles, then, you know, you're going to have to be on top of it and send them a strongly worded letter from your attorney on some letterhead, you know, and saying you need to take this off. Because when you see negative articles in the MSM press, you've got about three months before that's going to start hitting 
the Google search index as it gets laundered in through the Wikipedia and all that other stuff. And it may have even gotten faster and faster and closer together on the intervals. And you really got to be, you know, as an influencer on top of what the negative things that the mainstream media press is talking about you and try to head it off as it happens. The last thing I want to talk about in this is also the algorithmic changes. For some reason, Google decides that certain things are getting too big. In 2017, 2018, it was alternative health organizations, not WebMD, you know, something else like Dr. McCullough or Lifehacker. And basically, these were non-mainstream health sites. And they would use an evidence-based approach. And sometimes they got it wrong. But more often than not, they were better than the establishment in terms of saying what was healthy or not. And as a result of the Medica update that I believe happened in 2018, places like Dr. McCullough, which was the largest alternative health news site, it saw its organic traffic drop by 99% in one day. And so the thing is, is that, yes, it's a combination of what the MSM says, and then also sometimes Google will decide to just destroy an entire market sector of the economy. And then you just wake up one day and you don't have any more organic traffic going to your page anymore. So it's one of those two things I think is happening for your site. Well, it's really fascinating. I think what you've done is really begun to open the door for people to understand better what's going on. I want to thank you for joining me today. And we're going to have a link to your new book, Google Leaks, A Whistleblower's Exposé of Big Tech Censorship, on our show page at newsworld.com. And I want to encourage you to keep speaking out and writing more books and and helping educate the country, because this whole issue in in an age of oligarchs and in an age of gigantic IT systems, what you're doing really matters. And I appreciate very much your taking the time to join us and to help educate us today. Thank you, Newt. It's been a pleasure to come on your show and to be able to meet you like this is quite an honor for me. So thank you for making my day. Thank you to my guest, Zach Voorhees. You can get a link to Google Leaks, a whistleblower's expose of big tech censorship on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying News World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, Listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. 
Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals, Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.